Well, as you know, last Sunday was the last Sunday of Advent. We prepared for Christmas this year by looking at the three offices or job titles that Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus came to be a king, came to be a priest, and came to be a prophet. Jesus came as a conquering king to defeat the devil. We looked at that. He came as a sacrifice-offering priest to pay for our sins. And he came as a faithful prophet. We looked at this one last week. He came as a faithful prophet to speak for God. I don't know about you, but I was helped this Wednesday in my celebration of Jesus' birth by our Advent series. I felt prepared. I felt equipped. I felt even more excitement about what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. I, ho- I trust that was true for you too. But kind of like, now what? Now what? We've just prepared for Christmas. Now what do we do? Well, what I want to do this morning, kind of like the direction in Bill's prayer, I want to prepare us for the year ahead. We don't have four Sundays to do, do this, just one. But I want to prepare us for the new year that begins this Wednesday by looking at something that God says to us in the book of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Luke and find chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. You know, over the last couple of weeks, I've had a little extra time, some time off. I've been reading J.R.R. Tolkien's official biography. Have you guys seen this one by Carpenter? And one part of it caught my attention this, this last week, so much so that I read it to the kids before they opened gifts, along with reading from Luke chapter 2. And it was a story about one of Tolkien's most significant influences. It was a professor named Joe Wright. The book tells how Wright went from illiteracy at the age of 15 to become professor of comparative philology at Oxford University. Wright had worked in a mill since the age of six, and one day, after sort of seeing his workmates reading the newspaper and being jealous that they could do something that he couldn't do, he decided to teach himself to read, and Latin and mathematics too, just for good measure, often staying up until 2 a.m. in the morning studying, then he'd go to bed and then rise early at five the next day or that same day, to go to work at the mill. After saving money from his job, and for a while he tutored some of his workmates, after saving money, Wright went to Germany, hoping to spend just a term further studying at the great German University of Heidelberg, furthering his studies, furthering his interest in languages. He stayed there, in fact, long enough to earn a doctorate and ten languages. Sanskrit, Gothic, Old Bulgarian, Lithuanian, Russian, Old Norse, Old Saxon, Old and Middle High German, and Old English. Wright was eventually given a post at Oxford. That's where Tolkien runs into him. And where Wright's industrious work habits only continued. I share this story with you because of this next thing I want to share. This is what caught my attention. His work habits continued even after he re- assumed his post at Oxford. He, 
he shared a duplex with another professor from Oxford. And the biography told how Wright would stay up into the early hours of the morning, continuing his habits of doing that. And when finally retiring to bed, he would bang on the wall of his duplex so that his neighbor, whose eyesight wouldn't allow him to study by artificial light at night, could rise and begin his work. Wright would bang on the wall and say, Good morning, to which his neighbor would then reply, Good night. I, I love little windows like that into people's lives. What caught my attention and why I share it with you this morning is that it describes something, Wright's story describes something that is true of all of us as human beings. We were made to give ourselves to things. We, we were made to focus. We, we were made to use our energies to pursue good and noble work. That's how God's designed us. He's designed us to put our hearts into things, things like learning languages, things like accounting, things like English literature, things like art, and you name it. All kinds of good endeavors. Well, as we prepare for the new year, I want us to talk about the first and fundamental thing that God has designed us to pursue. I want us to look very closely and fully at the one thing that God has designed us to give our hearts to above all other things. And this brief moment before we start the new year, I want us to get a really clear picture of what our fundamental priority must be in the year ahead. And we see it in a story from Jesus' life found only in Luke's gospel. I want us to see it there first. We'll look at the story, and then I've got three resolutions that I want us to make in light of what we see. So story first, resolutions second. I trust you found Luke 10. Let's read it together. Look at verses 38 through 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for being kind enough to give us your word Thank you for revealing yourself to us. We're not left without guidance. We're not left without instruction. As we stand here, sit here on the cusp of a new year, we're not left without direction on how we should spend the life that you've gifted to us. So, Father, please help us this morning not only to hear but to understand, and not simply to understand but to treasure your word. We need you. We want to fellowship with you. We want to hear what you've got to say to us. That's why we've come. 
So would you sustain us? Would you nourish us? Would you build us up with your holy word this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, kids, here's your first assignment with your sheets. You've got a verse that has lots of blanks on it. If you haven't already, fill that out using your Bible or maybe your mom and dad's Bible next to you, okay? Fill it out. That's your first assignment after the service. If you've done all these assignments, or at least a couple of them, or I, I, I guess none at all, I'd still like to see your sheets, even if you've just colored. All right, here's the first thing I want us to do. Let's look at this story from Jesus' life, and then we'll talk about three things that I think God wants us to resolve to do in light of it. So in this story, Jesus tells us what our fundamental duty is as his followers. The passage begins by telling us where we are in Jesus' life. Look at verse 38. Luke tells us, Now as they, that's the disciples, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. So they're on a trip. Luke's gospel begins with Jesus' birth. Many of you probably read from Luke 1 and 2 this week on Christmas morning. Luke begins with Jesus' birth. And then it follows that, right on the heels of that in Luke's gospel, we hear about Jesus' preparation for his ministry. And then we see Jesus' brief ministry in Galilee, near his hometown. That's way up north in the land of Palestine, up near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus ministers up there, and Luke tells us that. But then Luke's gospel concentrates. It gives 10 chapters to Jesus' trip from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem and to Jesus' cross. Luke's gospel then concludes with Jesus in Jerusalem, dying, being buried, and raising again. And all this attention that Luke gives us to Jesus' trip to Jerusalem is Luke's way of showing us that Jesus' entire life and ministry were headed towards Jerusalem. They were headed towards what he would do in Jerusalem. He would die, he would be buried, he would raise again. Now our story, it's right at the beginning of this part of Luke's gospel, right at the beginning of Jesus' 10-chapter trip from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Jesus has just left his hometown, that was chapter 9, and now he's set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And what's interesting, however, is that our story seems to come out of sequence. We know from John's gospel that the village that Jesus enters here, the village where Mary and Martha lived, was called Bethany. And Bethany was really close to Jerusalem. It would be like Luke was narrating my family's annual trip to Florida. And before talking about what we saw in Chicago and then Indianapolis and then Louisville, Luke begins with a story that comes from Atlanta, why does Luke do this? Why does he have this story out of geographical sequential order? Luke does this for a very important purpose. Because on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus teaches his disciples and us, he teaches them what it means to follow him. And Luke wants to make sure we get this. So he gathers three of these stories together, and he puts them right here in chapter 10, right at the beginning of Jesus' journey, takes three lessons on discipleship and places them right here at the beginning of Jesus' journey. Our lesson this morning is the second lesson of three, and all three are well known. 
And they're placed together like this. They're meant to summarize what discipleship is. They're like a three-lesson summary about what it means to follow Jesus. The first lesson is the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the passage that immediately precedes ours. And as you know, the point of the Good Samaritan parable is disciples love other people. They serve other people. They show mercy to people they meet who need mercy. That's that's the first lesson in this three-part discipleship series that Luke gathers together. Now, the third lesson, the one that comes after ours, is where we get the Lord's Prayer. It gives us the Lord's Prayer. The disciples want to know, Jesus, how do we pray? And Jesus teaches them how to pray. And our lesson then is right in the middle. Good Samaritan, our lesson, Jesus' teaching on prayer. And we know that the three lessons are meant to give us a summary about discipleship by the way that the first one starts. Right before Jesus tells the first lesson, that parable of the Good Samaritan, we actually get a summary of what it means to follow Jesus. You can see it in chapter 10, verse 27. Why don't you look at it? We get this summary statement at the beginning of these three lessons, and it reads like this. This is verse 27. You shall love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's that summary that these three lessons then flesh out, that they explain, that they illustrate. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about a good Samaritan. What does it look like to love God with all your heart? Jesus says, let me tell you about these two sisters that I ran into in Bethany. Let me tell you how to pray. Our, our story, it's right in the middle, and it's in the middle for a reason, because it gives us the disciples' most important duty. All three are important, but this one in the center, Jesus is telling us, Luke is telling us by even the way they're ordered, it's the most important. So I've got another assignment for you kids. If you like to draw like I did when I was your age, here's what I want you to draw. Draw, I hope this doesn't make you hungry. I want you to draw a discipleship sandwich. What, is it, what do I mean by that? You're going to draw a piece of bread on the bottom and you're going to write on it, Good Samaritan, right? That draw a piece of bread. It can be like a rectangle. It's not hard. Draw a piece of bread on the top that says Lord's Prayer in it. And then right in the middle is the bologna or peanut butter and jelly, because I don't like bologna, and it sounds bad to refer to teaching as bologna. <laughs> right in the middle is our passage, and you can write two sisters. So there you have it, your discipleship sandwich. I'd like to see it afterwards. Draw that on your sheet. So friends, that's the setting of our story. It's a lesson about discipleship that Jesus gives us on his way to Jerusalem. He stops by Mary and Martha's house, And there he teaches us the most important duty of a disciple. All right, let's look at what happened. First, Martha speaks. Martha, she's the one who welcomed Jesus into her home. She's the one who showed Jesus hospitality. She speaks, but before she does, we read this. Look at verse 30. Before she speaks, we read, 
Verse 30, Martha, we're told this by Luke, Martha was distracted with much serving. And who can blame her? After all, Jesus just stopped by her house for dinner. Jesus came over unannounced to her house for dinner. Who can blame her for being distracted with much serving? And as hostess, she had certain responsibilities beyond feeding Jesus, like making sure Jesus was warmly greeted, making sure his feet were washed, making sure he felt refreshed with some anointing oil. And from what we read about Martha, responsibilities like this could be overwhelming. Notice verse 41. Jesus describes her as anxious and troubled about many things. Hosting Jesus was just the latest opportunity for Martha's oft-troubled spirit to be exercised. Now, before we listen to what Martha says, notice again what her sister is doing. Verse 39. What's Mary doing? Well, if Martha had written verse 39, she didn't. But if she had, she would have written it like this. I have a sister named Mary who's sitting at Jesus' feet and doing nothing. Martha's this whirl of activity, and Mary is a bump on a log. And if you have a sibling, you know that this is a situation ripe for frustration. You know, my boys are now big enough. They're big enough to ride shotgun, which is a kind of a big milestone in the progression of human existence. And it means that there's now one more thing for them to apply the strict code of sibling justice laws to. You know what I'm talking about. Now, granted, I was the same way with my brother. Don't tell my boys that. Now, a sibling's justice meter is very finely tuned. Siblings have a keen sense for when that scale is out of balance, even by a nanometer. They know when it's their turn to sit in the front seat And they know especially when it's not their brother's turn to sit in the front seat. So it's not surprising that Martha, looking at her sister sitting while she works, she finally boils over with frustration and says, this is the middle of verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 40, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You picture Martha, perhaps with flour on her apron, a dish towel slung over her shoulder. She interrupts Jesus' teaching and complains, Jesus, come on. Mary is lazing around and I'm killing it in there. Tell her to help me. All right, that's what Martha says. Now Jesus speaks. He responds to Martha. And it's in his response that he gives us the point of the lesson on discipleship in his response that we see the lesson on discipleship. Look at verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus doesn't side with Martha, which I think probably surprised Martha. But his response isn't scolding either. It's gentle. He says, Martha, Martha. Jesus repeats 
her name. You can almost hear the tenderness in Jesus' voice. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen it. Here's what Jesus tells us. Here's what he's telling us. Listening to his words, listening to God's words, they're the same thing. Listening to Jesus' words, listening to God's word is our highest priority. That's it's that simple. Listening to Jesus' words, which is to say listening to God's words is our highest priority. Kids, make sure you can label which one of the ladies, this is your next assignment, write Martha under the one who is distracted with much serving and write Mary on the other lady. There's only two ladies. The other one, the other one in the picture is Jesus. And maybe Mark next to Mary put a little star. She's chosen the one necessary thing. And don't miss this. Mary, or excuse me, Martha is like the best test case for the point that Jesus is making. She's like the best test case. It's not like Martha is watching Netflix while Mary reads her Bible. That's not what Martha's doing. She's not scrolling through Facebook while Mary listens to a sermon. Martha's making Jesus lunch while Mary's listening to Jesus teach. It's the best test case, kind of a discipleship dilemma that you could come up with. Mary is listening to Jesus. She's listening to him teach, and Martha's living it out. Which do you choose? Yes, yes, yes. I know Martha's living it out could use some attention. She's a bit of a worrywart. Perhaps she's too concerned that Jesus like his meal that he thinks her lentil stew is the best in the land. But Jesus doesn't correct Martha's motives. He doesn't correct her reasons for serving. He doesn't correct the manner she engages in the things she's chosen. Jesus corrects her choice. One thing is necessary, and it's not the meal you're making for me. It's the meal that I've made for you. That's actually what Jesus says. When he says, this is verse 42, when he says, Mary has chosen the good portion, that word portion in your Bible often refers to food, a meal. That's how Jesus uses it here. In other words, Jesus is saying, Mary has chosen to focus on the right meal. And Jesus says, I'm not going to take that away from her. It will not be taken away from her so that she can come and help you in the kitchen. Now, Jesus isn't saying that serving doesn't matter. After all, he's just told us the parable of the Good Samaritan. You, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. That, that, that's a huge point in the Bible. But what Jesus is saying is that serving isn't the disciples' highest priority. Serving isn't the disciples' highest priority. Activity for others, even for Jesus, isn't your highest priority. The disciples' highest priority, the one thing that is necessary above all others, is what Mary has chosen to do. Look at verse 39. Mary, we're told, this is what she had chosen to do. Mary chose to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching. 
You, you want to know what, what is the most important, urgent, most significant thing you can give your time and attention to, even if you had a choice between serving Jesus and listening to Jesus. Jesus is telling here the choice has to be you've got to listen to him, just like Mary did. Before you can serve Jesus, you've got to be served by Jesus. Before you act on Jesus' words, you've got to attend to Jesus' words. Why? Why this importance placed on listening to Jesus? Because we can live without service for God, but we can't live without communion with God. Listen, you can live without service for God, but you cannot live without communion with God. There's a part of us, a really important part, that requires spiritual calories, words that proceed out of God's mouth. There's a part of us, the Bible calls it your inner man, that is sustained by this book, by Jesus' words, by God's words. And before you act, you've got to listen, because you're not going to be able to act long, much less in the right way, if you're spiritually malnourished if you're starving spiritually. In fact, for some of you, I think that's probably your diagnosis this morning. That's what's wrong. You've wondered, why, why do I feel off? What's wrong with me? I think God's telling you, you've got to eat spiritually. Like some of us are just simply spiritually malnourished. This meal today on Sunday isn't enough. Sundays, as good as they are, they're not enough. Your, your breakfast this morning wasn't intended to last you until next Sunday. Neither is this sermon. Your physical hunger pains are designed, folks. They're designed to remind you of this very truth. You don't live by bread alone. You're not sustained by that kind of calorie alone. You've got to live. You've got to be sustained. You've got to be nourished by the very words of God. And we live by God's words. We live by them because they give us life. Why do they give us life? Because they bring us into communion with the source and sustainer of life. God's word actually brings you into fellowship with God. To listen to Jesus' words, to listen to our Bibles, is to commune with the living God, to fellowship with God himself. It is the highest and best thing we could ever do that we could ever give our hearts to. It's, it's actually what you were made for. So that's what Jesus wants us to see in this story about the two sisters. Listening to God's word. It's our best and highest priority. It's what we ought to be giving our most urgent and best time to. Now what does that mean for us? That, that feels like a true principle that we, none of us would likely disagree with that. But what do we do with Jesus' words here? Well, since we're on the cusp of a new year, I felt resolutions were in order, so I want to give us three. Three things, three resolutions for the new year based on what Jesus has taught us here. I, I want us to make resolutions that will allow us to make Mary's choice, our choice, more often in the new year than perhaps it was in 2019. So I'd encourage you to write these down. They're really short. And I'd encourage you to personalize them. Like, I will, and then put I'll help you with this, okay? Here's the first one. Kids, this would be a great thing for you to write down to. You know what? You can resolve to do these things too. It's not beyond you. 
Here's the first one. First resolution. I will make a plan for listening to God's word. I told you they're not going to be like rocket science here. I will make a plan for listening to God's word. What do I mean? Well, God has given us this wonderful ability as humans to form habits. Things that if we do repeatedly enough, we can almost do automatically. In fact, just this week I was getting my hair cut and my barber and I were joking about the fact that we can drive home from work. You know this phenomenon. You can drive home from work and get there and be surprised because you don't remember any part of the trip. It's a disturbing fact of my life that my wife knows about me. And I'm sure you, some of you have that experience too. How is that possible? Well, because you've done it so much, it's become a habit. It's, it's become part of your muscle memory. We're designed that way. And this is my point. It's a design that can serve your spiritual growth. You need spiritual growth fostering habits. Habits that make it easier for you to hear from God. Habits that put you in a place to hear from God without you having to think all that hard about how you got there. That's what I'm talking about. Habits that put you in a place to hear from God without you having to think all that hard about how you got into that place. And for this, you need a plan that includes the following elements. Here it is. Decide on a place. Decide on a place where you'll read your Bible. Decide on a time when you'll read your Bible. Decide on a plan of what you'll read when you read your Bible. Where, when, and what. It is, it's that easy. Where are you going to read? When are you going to read? What are you going to read? Where, in your, where are you going to read your Bible? What time are you going to read your Bible? What in your Bible are you going to read? My, my gospel community this last year, we made plans like this. And then we shared them with each other at the beginning of the year. One of our guys, he reads his Bible at the kitchen table. He, he resolved to from 7 to 7.30. That was the time. And what he read was he used Don Carson's book, For the Love of God, the one that we've sold in the lobby the last couple weeks. He used that book in the Bible reading plan that it includes. You could do that. Another person in my gospel community, this, in this case my wife, she reads every morning from 6.30 to 7 by our fireplace. And she uses this thing called a one-year Bible. Both of these things, Don Carson's For the Love of God, this one-year Bible, they are simple to use, and they're two that we would highly recommend as a church. Make sure, of course, that you have a Bible in a modern English translation, like the English Standard Version or the New International Version, or the one I recommend all the time because it's very readable, is the New Living Translation. In fact, one of the best things you can do each year when you read your Bible is get a fresh translation. So it's harder for you to just sort of skim your eyes over it. Uh-huh, I know this. I've heard that. Get something fresh. And I would encourage you, if you've not read the New Living Translation, pick one of those up. In fact, in today's application questions, I've got links to Bible reading plans. I've got links to some of these resources. I've got a link to a Bible reading method. All right, you're in the Bible now. What questions do you ask? How do you extract from the Bible what's important? So make sure you've got a good modern translation that is readable. Make sure you share your plan with somebody else. And not only share it with them, but give them permission to check in with you kind of throughout the year. 
not just like in January when things are going to be going well, but maybe in March, June, and so forth. And make sure your plan's realistic. Look, if you only read your Bible one or two times a week, three or four times a month, if, if you didn't read it a lot last year, it's probably not realistic for you to make a plan that requires and depends on you reading an hour every day of the week. Or if you've got toddlers at home and they are up late into the night more often than you'd like, moms, you probably don't need a plan that requires you reading the Bible every morning early, okay? Be realistic. I'd say be ambitious, but don't be unrealistic. And remember, this is like an asterisk that should be next to all resolutions. You can adjust these mid-year, okay? You can adjust them. So do your best. Make them ambitious, but not unrealistic. All right, that was all under the umbrella of the first resolution. I will make a plan for listening to God in the new year. Is that how I said it? I will make a plan for, yeah, for listening to God's word. All right. Second resolution. Here it is. Resolution two. I will stick to my plan. You've made a plan. Now you've got to resolve. Stick with your plan. It's that simple. Make it and then resolve to stick with it. Listen, 2020 is going to try to jerk you all around. It's going to try to pull you in a hundred different directions. Like Martha, 2020 will be anxious and troubled about many things. And it's going to do its dead level best to distract you from listening to Jesus. So you have got to resolve with God's help to stick with your plan. You've got to give it priority. If listening to Jesus is your highest and best responsibility as a Christian, then you've got to prioritize it in your life, which means you've got to make and then stick with your plan. And I know, I know this. Some of us, we made plans for 2019 and we had trouble sticking with them. I did. I planned to read through my entire Bible and I made it through the first uh, 36 books. That's pretty good. I made it through the Old Testament. But maybe some of you were like me. You made a plan and you didn't quite fulfill your plan. Does that mean I or you should give up and stop trying? No, no way. Make a plan. Do your best with God's help to stick with it. That's the second resolution. All right, final resolution, number three. Last point. I will engage in my plan. I will engage in my plan. What do I mean? Just having a plan and sticking to it isn't enough, and you know this. You've not only got to open your Bible regularly, but you've got to engage your ears and, above all, your heart. You've got to open this book with, like, full of expectation, full of faith. You've got to sit down and really try to listen to what God says. I, I like how Mike Bullmore talks about this. He talks about how in the morning when he reads his Bible, he pictures God kind of looking at him out of the words, which is, which is a pretty good picture, and God saying to him, Mike, what are you doing here this morning? To which Mike responds something like, I can't remember the exact words, but Lord, I'm, I'm, I've come to hear from you. Lord, I've come because you have the words of life. 
In other words, before you start your reading every day, let God know and let your own heart know what your intention is. What are you doing? Why have you sat down? What are you trying to do? In fact, I'd encourage you to pray something like this each morning before you read. Father, I've come to listen to you, to fellowship with you. Draw near to me. James talks about that. Father, I've come. Here I am. I'm sitting. I'm kind of groggy if it's early in the morning. I'm, I'm tired, but I know how important this is. Father, I've come. I've come to fellowship with you. Draw near to me. And I'm telling you, that's a prayer that God will be very eager to answer. All right, three resolutions. You'll make a plan, you'll stick with your plan, and you'll engage in your plan. I would love to see just a personal request. If you make a plan, I'd love to see you share it with somebody this week. I would love to see your plan. Fill, fill in my inbox. I'll share it with the other guys if you don't mind. But let's, let's as a church, let's resolve to put ourselves in the place of Mary from this story more often in 2020 than we did this year. Let's do this as a church for our good, for God's glory, for the good of our families, and all the kind of good that flows out of this. All right, let me conclude with this. In God's kindness, he structured reality seasonally. When you think about the, the way reality is structured, God did that to us in his kindness. He's given us days. He's given us months. He's given us years. And he's given us, by these things, built-in opportunities to assess, to reflect, and to begin afresh. Don't you love new beginnings? And I, I love the possibilities that January 1st always offers me. We've got a brand fresh year, actually decade, to begin on this Wednesday. And God has told us in his word this morning what our greatest and highest good is in the new year. He says, listen to my word. So Crossway, resolve with God's help to pursue this great good in this new year. Father, help us, we pray. We come before you now asking for resolve and spiritual energy and vitality and conviction. We've heard your word. We believe it. Help our unbelief, but we believe it. So, Father, help us to transfer belief into right action, sitting, Bibles opened, Day after day in 2020, what, what fruit could be born? What glory could be brought to you because our ideas of you more accurately, accurately reflect who you are? So, Father, we, we are here on the cusp of a new year asking you to help transfer belief into resolve and therefore into action in 2020. For your glory, for our good, for the good of this community in which we live, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.